With the high value of sheep in recent years, the quest to live reproduction rates has been extensive. The success of lifetime ewe management has been well documented, but beyond this, reducing mob size for twin bearing ewes is proven and it featured in the first very successful AWI Changemakers short video series. Have a look if you haven't seen it. Precision lambing was discussed by Tim Leeming in episode 132 of The Yarn and today we hear about a very different approach. It's a high input system that has also delivered significant results. Welcome to The Yarn. It's a podcast for the Australian wool industry. I'm Marius Cumming. And today we hear from Central Victorian wool grower Tony Butler, who has operated a twin lambing shed for a decade and is now putting through up to 1,500 ewes a year through his system. This year alone, it will deliver him 500 more lambs than otherwise. So this interview is a little longer than most because we also talk through Tony's experience heading to China last year and a really cool story about how the farm was bought many generations ago. It's well worth a listen. So I caught up with Tony Butler on top of a windy hill with his twin lambing shed recently. We're standing here in our uh, mothering pen shed. The, uh, the covers off, are off the roof. We've just closed up for the year. Uh, we allow the summer sun to dry it all out and disinfect it, but principally it's made up of 112 uh, individual mothering pens, which are approximately three quarters of a metre wide by a metre long. Uh, where our twin bearing ewes are transferred to just after lambing in the lambing sheds behind us uh, where they remain for anything from uh, 48 to 72 hours uh, depending on what point we are in the lambing curve uh, and also on prevailing weather conditions and what might be around the corner in terms of weather. Um, They're principally aimed at uh, bonding or getting the maximum bonding effect uh, from the merino ewe to her lambs and vice versa, uh, bearing in mind that it is only the whole system is aimed at uh, multiple bearing merino ewes, not singles. We, we don't apply the, this, uh, this effort or cost to the single bearing ewes. They do it out in the paddock conventionally. Um, but yes, we, we have been doing it now for 10 years. Uh, with mixed results, we've learnt a lot over the years. Uh, I don't think we've ever done two years the same. Um, but yes, uh, we're having an impact, but we're also uh, getting a bit exasperated uh, with some of, of the problems we're facing. But um, I do have every intention of, of working through those in the next 10. So, well, first of all, Tony, congratulations for trying so hard over that decade to maximize your twin lamb survival through a lambing shed did you initially set this up because of the frustration of twin lamb losses that was the prime motivation marius um i could see from various many attempts at at uh, paddock lambing twins uh, that we had to do something a bit differently um my greatest uh, frustration, I'm sure it is, with, with all uh, Merino breeders is that the Merino ewe uh, will function quite happily with one but give her another and the problems seem to escalate dramatically. 
so it's, it seemed to me logical that if I could lamb them A, in out of the weather and B, keep them isolated with their offspring then uh, it could only have beneficial effects. So uh, if you could take us through how it actually works. Okay, well, um, it all starts back at joining time. I join progressively through the age groups with approximately uh, five to seven day uh, intervals between age groups. Normally start with the oldest first. Uh, So the rams go into that particular age group. Five to seven days later, they go out with the next age group and we work our way down through the age groups uh, as such so that uh, at no point... Uh, during the lambing uh, do we outgrow the infrastructure that we have though uh, after the last lambing uh, we did conceive almost 50% of the flock did conceive twins so that really pushed us to the limit in what we could uh, what we could handle at any one time but the whole idea of, of it of the spread joining is to stretch the the, uh, the lambing, stretch that curve out and make it manageable. Now, the next step occurs at scanning time when the scanner is asked uh, in each, within each age group to classify a set of twins as it comes through into one of five developmental groups. Now, this is not uh, foolproof by any means, but it's purely based on the size of the fetuses in the ewe. So uh, they are put into one of five groups and naturally of course those groups vary greatly in numbers and each animal that's then been classified has a coloured ear tag which corresponds to that group. So that then gives me the ability at lambing time to uh, filter the number of sheep through in a logical and sequential manner which once again uh, allows us to make maximum use of a given amount of infrastructure. Wow, that's answered by someone who's done it a lot by the sound of it. So, Tony, the, the, the twin-bearing ewes come in here, uh, and what, how, how do you manage them? How does it work day by day? Well, uh, at, at the moment, we are um, we're lambing on an earthen floor in a bed of barley straw. So the individual, once, the, once they are, are lambed in the lambing pens, I have eight of those in two separate container sheds, Uh, using bales of straw for walls. Um, They are lambed in in four separate pens. Now once they are lambed, once the animal has lambed, it's removed uh, with her two lambs and taken down to the mothering pens or uh, bonding pens as we call them. Uh, The ewes placed in there with her lambs in straw again where she's fed and watered for maybe uh, 48 to 72 hours depending on the throughput. Uh, From then uh, they go out into a containment yard of 50 metres by 50 metres. I have three of those. So each day there may be 28 ewes and whatever offspring they have, which could be anything from 50 to 60 lambs, we do get some triplets, uh, are moved through and then they go out into the yard. Uh, They're left there for maybe another 24 to 48 hours. And that stage, I think, uh, is important because it allows the animal uh, to try and recognise their offspring in a small mini-mob situation. And likewise, I think it helps the lambs uh, to recognise their mother before they're released out into the paddock. Wow. Well, it's incredibly labour-intensive to bring in these ewes, to have them 
lamb in a mob setting but then separate them into these single um, single pens of which there are dozens and dozens and dozens and then to put them back into essentially a mob setting at point so what are the what are the results been like Look, generally speaking, um, I couldn't do much better than around 120 to 130% in the paddock and it was frustrating me that I was losing 70 or 80% given weather conditions. And as you well know, uh, uh, anything from the end of July through to the end of August, you can have some very devastating weather events coming right at the peak of lambing and the effect that has on paddock uh on paddock lamb ewes, especially with twins, can be utterly devastating and emotionally destructive as well from the point of view of the producer. Um, Look, to this point in time, we generally average between 150 to 160% of lambs. Um, It's frustrating that I can't go that extra 10 to 20%. We're working on it. We've run across problems that I wouldn't have envisaged 10 years ago. Uh, some of which we've been able to overcome. Um, So, look, there is still room for improvement. Um, I think, we're generally speaking, we're getting 30 to 40% more lambs on the ground than we would in a paddock situation. And it did not suit us here on this farm, in this agricultural operation, to go splitting our paddocks up interminably to try and lamb them down in mobs of of a hundred or less that was not an option here I had to look at something different I've decided on this Um, yes it's labor intensive I use overseas backpackers come in each year and do it Um, it's certainly very busy at the peak um, but we've managed and at this point in time um, I'm, I think I'm, I'm going to continue to do it uh, because it is relatively cost effective. Just to give a sense of the scale, what you had a particularly large number of uh, twinning ewes through this year. What were the numbers through the shed this year? Uh, we joined, in total we joined uh, 3,900 ewes. Of that 3,900 that were joined, uh, there were 3,750 in lamb. Of the 3,750 in lamb, there were 1,620 came back with twins in them, including 550 maidens from 1,400 maidens joined. Uh, And this was obviously due to the very uh, acceptable seasonal conditions we had from February on. a green pick in February prior to the lambs, the rams going out at the end of the month uh, is always highly desirable. It equates to a protein flush and therefore um, we get greater ovulation. So those are the numbers we had to deal with. Um, obviously we get some that uh, because of the fetal size estimation uh, they lamb before we get to them, get them in the system. Uh, they only amounted to around 250 in total and I tend to, uh, to drift the unlamb ewes away from those that have lambed uh, and carry the system on and the average of those that have lambed outside uh, is probably barely 120 compared to um, what we hope to achieve here, uh, what those that have actually gone through the system. So you've had around, was it around 1,500 ewes through? Uh, Your, I think, the, system I think the figures were about 1,300 of the 1,600 uh, have actually gone through the, the system this year. 
Um, I, I'd like to think that we'll do slightly better than our, than our average this coming year due to an increased birth weight of lambs. Right. Now, from speaking to you um, about this, the issue isn't going in, the issue is coming out. So managing the uh, ewes and lambs and their behaviour going from the shed back out into the paddock is the area that you want to work on. Yes, we find our, our losses... Uh, are generally speaking worse in the first day or two or three days uh, after release as we say once they go out into the containment yards um, that can be an issue depending on the weather uh, and then once the gates open and they're allowed out into the paddock yes you do lose some and I think uh, a lot of that is the confusion uh, caused by multiple births, multiple birthing ewes, uh, bringing two lambs out. That can be an issue, uh, and I think intrinsically it is an animal behaviour issue uh, because, as we all know, we're frustrated by the fact that a merino ewe can manage one but give her two, and the problems are tenfold. Um, and that is probably where my greatest frustrations lie. I think I would like to incorporate a, a further stage next year uh, after leaving the mothering pens where they've been individually housed I'd like to put them into a series of larger pens with perhaps 28 ewes and all the lambs involved into a large pen for maybe 24 to 48 hours to give them an opportunity to learn to recognise their lambs in a small mob situation before they're exposed to the elements. Sounds like a perfect academic study. Uh, so if anyone that is listening to this might be interested in uh, something around it, I mean, you've done this for 10 years, so you've got a lot of base data around the current system. What exactly, if you're pitching to uh, a potential academic that might be interested in a study or a trial, what would you say to them? I would say, please come and have a, have a discussion with me because... Um, I'm pretty passionate about what I do and I'm looking to improve it and I'm, I'm absolutely uh, certain that improvement comes but only in tiny increments over time um, and anyone who is uh, interested in this field I'm sure would be able over time to give me some sound advice as well. Uh, as you can well imagine it's an extremely busy time of the year um, we do have to do a certain amount of night work as well so that saps the energy out of, of management and staff um, so anyone who comes on board uh, would be more than welcome uh, to discuss any potential academic involvement. But uh, from an infrastructure point of view is it another shed that's required? Is that, is, is I, that all I that's think needed? What, what, what we will do uh, next year is build or erect another what we call container type shed that uh, they're a, a steel frame with with uh, a tarpaulin type uh, synthetic covers on them and that's all that's required uh, those covers could be removed uh, annually after lambing uh, leaving the basic infrastructure there and we simply use bale, big bales of straw as windbreaks uh, similar to what some uh, modern uh, piggeries use um, and this is, keeps our infrastructure costs down. Uh, we also use our, our lambing sheds, which are permanent. We also use them for storing machinery or hay in between lambings, so we get a double use out of it. Well, Tony, um, let's hope that someone responds to the call. It sounds like a, a fascinating piece of work that could take place and something that many people could potentially benefit from.
Thank you, Marius, for the interest. Well, there are not many growers that are as passionate as you, Tony, but um, last year you got the chance to go to China and saw the country that actually buys a very significant amount of our wool. What did you make of actually going to the other end? I, I did, and it was a very interesting experience. I'm glad we did. We went last year and didn't have a plan for this year, uh, the way the political scene has deteriorated. Um, I did find it uh, very interesting because it was a wool growers tour specifically, so we looked at uh, um, the, the, the mill side of things, and I suppose the highlight of the trip was actually to find some of uh, our own bales of wool that had been turned off this farm in the previous shearing uh, in the wool store at Tianyu and this was uh, probably the highlight of the tour to think that uh, I had to go halfway around the world to find my own wool or what was my own wool uh, in someone else's wool store <laughs> uh, but, but having said that uh, I was I was certainly um, very interested in some of the discussions we had with the AWI staff uh, in China, especially around the uh, environmental credentials that the young Chinese consumer who was buying and will again buy our products, our wool and our our woolen products, um, the, the weight they give to the environmental credentials that go with wool. And I think this is something that no wool grower uh, can ignore. The value of this uh, compared to um, our synthetic competitors, how people, uh, educated young consumers, are making an environmental choice and they are deciding to invest in in wool uh, for reasons apart from comfort and style. And I think that we will get back to that situation again and I think those consumers in China, uh, they hold uh, our future in their hands and we need to get them back buying wool again. And credit to Alistair Carr who uh, organised your particular tour and I can say from an AWI point of view that the, the AWI and Woolmark staff overseas love love being able to speak to wool growers uh, in that market. Obviously you saw uh, wool being processed and you saw wool at retail and um, spoke to a lot of different parts of the chain. Did you come back uh, from China more enthused about the fibre? I did at the time, I certainly did um, and I, I think the investment that's been made in, in wool processing in China, it's, a, it's a, a monster that has to be fed in the years to come and I think um, and the ability of, of Australian wool growers to feed that monster in the future is going to depend on obviously on the number of merino ewes that we have here so uh, I would urge uh, I would urge Australian wool growers to get out there and breed more merino ewes. Was there genuine concern that there wouldn't be enough supply of wool from those processes? Is that where that's come from? Not at the time. I, I don't think uh, there was that concern at the time. Um, but obviously the way the market has deteriorated in the interval, uh, that may be an issue now. And with growers withholding wool from sale, and you can't blame them for, for not taking the money currently. Um, but I think we've got to look beyond that. And uh, once we get these young, wealthy Chinese consumers fired up again, then there could be no stopping them. Did this trip give you a better sense of what the marketing is all about? I think it's, it's probably given me a much better appreciation of the long-term nature of 
wool promotion and marketing. It's not something that's going to happen in two or three or even ten years. I think it's a generational thing and I think it's something that we wool growers um, have to bear due to the nature of, of what we grow. Uh, I think it's something that takes a long time to have an effect but if you're in that market and you're promoting your product for 15 to 20 years and eventually it will the benefits will come back so did you come back from china and do anything differently or plan anything differently for your own farm interesting question um the answer to that is probably no uh i I, i'm still running it the way we did uh obviously the way the wool market's gone in the last six months um it tends to cloud the issue or perhaps remove some of of that optimism that was there but I think we have to have the discipline to look beyond that uh, and see and have actually have have an undying faith and confidence in what we're producing a belief in what we produce and uh, I, I think that I'm, I'm very heartened by the size of the market and more importantly the, the, the size of of the domestic consumption market in China uh, and that's changed dramatically in recent years. Uh, there's so much wool being processed in China even a decade ago and being exported but now so much more of that is being consumed locally and I think that is going to be the key to the Australian wool growers success in years to come. Fantastic well the last question I have and it's a, a lovely story um, you're not the first passionate wool grower um, in your family in fact it goes back many many generations and we are here close to the victorian gold fields i'd love you to share with the listeners the story of how your family came to be on this land the first butler in the district uh, was actually a an older brother to my great great grandfather he had been uh, transported to sydney as a convict as a boy of 17 in 1820 and he was the first uh, butler here. Um, he was actually convicted on, on two occasions. He'd done his time in Sydney for the first seven years and then through, through a, um, a very malicious act uh, by someone else, he was convicted for another seven years, which he spent at Norfolk Island. And after that, he, he, uh, he did shift to Victoria and start a, uh, a bullock uh, transport business. He was a bullocky where he carted wool from the sheep stations of the day and I'm talking about the late 1830s into the 1840s where he was carting wool off stations down to the uh, newly established port at Melbourne. Um, from then on his younger brothers uh, gravitated out here and with them he, is, he grew his uh, cartage business and from the 1860s when the railways came, that business died very quickly because farmers could put their produce on a train. And uh, butlers then had to go either gold fossicking, which they did to some success, uh, or farming. And uh, that's really the story in a nutshell. So. Tell me the story of how this farm was purchased. Well, this, this farm was purchased by a, an uncle of my great grandfather who uh, lived a little further up the gully with his family originally and who by good fortune accidentally found some gold. He was out with the horse and dray to get a load of wood 
and the wheel of the dray went over a, a rock or an outcrop of reef and I suppose it nearly threw him out of the seat so he turned round and there in the sun gleaming uh, was a, an outcrop of, of gold and the story or the legend has it as I've been told that with the back of the axe he broke the reef open and one in an afternoon at the time was 700 pounds worth of gold and I do believe that that uh, went towards the purchase of this farm initially. What a wonderful story. If you, you haven't come across any glinting... No, I haven't come across any glinting gold. Most of, most of the gold uh, we try and produce here comes out of the top three inches. <laughs> well, Tony, um, congratulations on what you've been able to achieve here and let's hope that um, you continue to do so, perhaps with a little bit of help. But um, it's great to have you on the yarn today and very much appreciate uh, your time. Thank you, Marius. Thanks for the opportunity. Tony Butler of Newstead in central Victoria there. And if you'd like to be involved in taking the results to the next level, please contact us at theyarn at wool.com. So we've travelled a fair way across the industry in this episode, haven't we? I hope you liked it as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you. So from me, Marius Cumming, thanks for your company, and I look forward to having another yarn with you soon. <laughs>